Well, uh, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Grateful to get to be with you. Uh, like we did that first Sunday, we're going to open God's Word together because that's how we roll here at River City because what I have to say is mostly unimportant, uh, but what God has to say matters more than anything. And so we're going to open His Word together as we have, as we did the first week and as we have every week since, and we're going to see how God's Word changes and impacts our lives. And so uh, if you are new or visiting, want to say welcome, want to invite you into that with us. Uh, just we'd love to get to know you and get you plugged in here. So uh, we are on the front end of a new series this fall, working our way through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And uh, as we've seen the past couple of weeks, the book of Nehemiah is really largely made up of this guy's memoirs or his journals, right, as, uh, on, throughout his life and the things that God's asked, been asking him to do. And, but the thing that we've found out ultimately is that although the book is made up of this dude's journals mostly, um, it's not ultimately about him. The book's not ultimately about Nehemiah. Like every other book in the Bible, we see that they're really books that are all actually about God. We talked specifically about how the book of Nehemiah is ultimately a book that shows us that God is a God who is faithful to keep his promises, that he's faithful, that he's sovereign, that he is in control, and that he, that he keeps his promises. We talked about how one of the most central storylines throughout the whole Bible is that what God is doing, that he is building for himself, he is making for himself a people who are going to live for the praise of his glory, a people whose lives uh, worship him and whose lives full of obedience unto him bear his name and reflect his glory to the world. And we saw how in Leviticus 26 in the Old Testament, what God does is he makes a covenant or a promise with his people that, that if they would worship and if they would obey him, that he would gather them into the land that he had been preparing them for and that he would bless them spiritually and physically and relationally and, and all the rest. And but that if they chose instead to reject and disobey him, that he would, instead of gathering them and blessing them, that he would oppose them and he would scatter them throughout the nations. And sadly, as you read the Old Testament, we see that God's people chose option two, the one where uh, they enthrone themselves as God and they reject God's good rule and authority. And, and uh, what happens is that God keeps his promise to oppose and to scatter them. And, and uh, he allows the Babylonian Empire to conquer Jerusalem and to destroy the city and, and to send God's people into exile throughout the Babylonian Empire. But what's so important that you know is that that's not the end of the story, nor was it the end of the promises that God made with his people. You see, God had promised as well at the end of Leviticus 26 and reiterates in Jeremiah 29 how if his people would turn in faith and repentance, if they would choose to acknowledge their sin and instead turn in faith and repentance back towards God, that, that God would remember the first part of his promise, to gather them and to bless them and to cause them to be a people who live for the praise of his glory and his place. And, and that's really the part of the story of redemptive history where, we, where the book of Nehemiah sits. That's where we kind of pick up that story. You see, Nehemiah is a Jewish exile living in the Persian Empire. The Persians had conquered the, the Babylonian Empire, and so they were the next ones in line. And, and so Nehemiah is a, is a Jewish exile living in the Persian Empire. And what you see as the story opens is that God has put Nehemiah in a very strategic Place. He is the cupbearer for the great king of Persia, the, the greatest, probably the most powerful man in the, in the world at the time. And, and so Nehemiah's job as a cupbearer was basically to taste all of the food and wine that was set before the king, mostly to make sure it wasn't poison and didn't kill the king, which I can imagine is a job with lots of benefits and some significant caveats, right? Uh, and so uh, Nehemiah is in that job, and, and uh, that position was one of an incredible trust and also influence with the king. And, 
What you see happening throughout the story is that, is that God uses Nehemiah to bring about the fulfillment of the promises that he had made to his people. That if they would turn in faith and repentance, that he would gather them again and, and cause them to be his people and live for his glory. And, and, uh, and ultimately to keep his promise to, to be a people through whom one day he would send the, the ultimate savior, not one who would rescue them from uh, captivity in Babylon or Persia or Egypt, but the ultimate savior who would rescue them from captivity to Satan and sin and death. And, and so Nehemiah then isn't ultimately a story about a great leader, but a story about a great God. The, the true, one true God of heaven who sovereignly rules and reigns and brings about his purposes and keeps his promises. But Nehemiah is also a story about God's people and about how God's people respond in faith to who God's proven himself to be, to sovereign and faithful king, and, and about what it looks like when God's people respond in dependence and faith by committing themselves to being and to building a community who will live for the praise of his glory, to being the people that God calls them to be. And we saw, as we studied chapter one, how all that begins with God beginning to give Nehemiah his heart for the city of Jerusalem and, and for his name in that city. Nehemiah opens the book by recounting how he received a report from his brother Hananiah about the, how the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and his gates had been burned with fire. And we talked about how his, his response, where he just mourns and fasts and weeps and prays for months, is, seems a bit dramatic if we're honest, right? Because uh, that would not have been new information, right? The walls of Jerusalem, uh, they've, been, they've been torn down for 140 plus years. And he works for the very king who specifically put the kibosh on any future rebuilding efforts that would ever take place in the city. So Nehemiah absolutely knew what was going on in the city of Jerusalem. And so he gets this information, but it's not new information, and yet it still hits him in a new way. Because what's happening is that God's giving Nehemiah his heart. He's causing him to care about his name and his glory in the city of Jerusalem in a way he didn't before. And, and, to, and to see how the dilapidated state of the city and its people were ultimately a disgrace to God's name. And Nehemiah, who we saw in chapter 1, loves God's name and delights in revering God's name. He, he can't stand for that. He, 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 is, he is disturbed by that. And so what we see God doing is preparing Nehemiah to be an instrument through which he's going to fulfill his promises. But we saw in chapter 2 that it wasn't just Nehemiah's heart God was preparing. It was also King Artaxerxes' heart as well, right? Uh, Nehemiah is praying and fasting and months. And, he, and then he goes in this act of great bold dependence on God. And he goes before King Artaxerxes with an insane request, right? He basically asks this king, the most powerful man in the world at the time to not only reverse his own foreign policy decisions, but also to personally endorse and fund the rebuilding of a city he specifically said he never wanted to have rebuilt. And he says, yes, the king agrees to everything. He even goes above and beyond. He sends Nehemiah with an entourage, right? He's got like an army officials, like he's got a party with them, right? He is official. He is legit, right? And so we see is that Nehemiah understands that the king's response to his request is nothing short of miraculous. And he gives God all the credit for that. It's not lost on Nehemiah that there is no way his strategy or plan was the reason why the king said yes to him. 
he realized that it's God's gracious hand that's been at work in him. And so armed with the clear support and the resources not only of the great king Artaxerxes, but of the God of heaven himself. We see Nehemiah at the end of last week. He, he embarks out on this 900 plus mile journey. It would have taken three or four months of traveling every day to get from the Babylonian capital in Susa over to Jerusalem. And, and we pick up the story this morning in the second half of chapter 2 where Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem and for the first time sees the, the state of the walls and the state of the people and the state of the city with his own eyes for the very first time. And what we're going to see happening this morning is that, God, is that Nehemiah is calling God's people to, to join him in a bold dependence on God. He's calling them to be a people who will believe that God is who he says that he is and that he can be trusted and to say yes to the vision that God's given him about building the wall and removing the disgrace that God's name is under because of it. And so uh, can't wait to show you. There's so much good stuff in there this morning. So let's pray. We'll dive into our passage. Jesus, thanks for uh, this book. Thanks for our time together. Thanks for your word. We are so grateful for it. And we're just grateful, Jesus, that although uh, this story is uh, really old, uh, that it is anything but outdated. And we're just grateful that uh, you call us to be your people like you called Nehemiah in his day and, and your people to be a part of building your kingdom. And so we ask humbly, God, that you would empower us to be your people in the world and that as we see that happening in the Old Testament, that we would see your call to us to join in that work with you in the new. And so we're grateful for that, Jesus. We ask that you would um, be the one who empowers our time together and who uh, allows your glory to be the result of it. And so we pray all that in your name. Amen. All right, well, we're in Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be in verses 11 through 20. It begins this way. So I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. And I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were... Uh, there were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate and examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up in the valley by night examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate and and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or, or anyone else about the work that we would be doing. And then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, its gates burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began the good work. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success and we his servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. 
All right, so uh, we saw in the first part of chapter 2 how Nehemiah is giving all of the credit for the king's miraculous response to God. He, he's, he's acknowledging that God's the one who's doing this incredible thing and enabling the king to respond uh, positively to his request. And the reality is, is that what we see happening in the second half of the chapter is just as miraculous as the king's response. The people, uh, they agree, they're on board with what Nehemiah wants to do, and that is really unexpected. Let me, let me explain. You see, Jerusalem was conquered and destroyed by Babylon in 586 BC. That's about 140 years prior to, to Nehemiah coming to, to back to Jerusalem. And it left the walls of the city and the temple in ruins. It left homes uninhabited and broken down. And it remained that way for basically 70 years until King Cyrus and the Persians conquered Babylon and then subsequently allowed the exiled people that Babylon had captured to go to return back to their homelands. And we read in, in Ezra how under a guy named Zerubbabel, the first wave of Israelite exiles returned from Babylon and returned back to Jerusalem and began work on rebuilding the temple. But as you read the story, what you see in Ezra is that it was slow going, and when it was finished, the, the temple that they had rebuilt was a pale, weak shadow compared to what it used to be. And instead of people being filled with joy at the, at the return of a temple that would be for the place for God's worship, what you see is that people are disheartened. And they're defeated because it's not what it once was. And, and it's not the place that they wanted it to be. Besides the fact that without the walls of a city being rebuilt, nobody was living in the city. And the temple and the city itself were largely uninhabited and, and unused. And so 60 years later, after Zerubbabel, a second wave of exiles returns to the city under a guy named Ezra, right? And he, uh, they start working, he's a priest, to try to continue to rebuild and to reestablish the city. But, but King Artaxerxes, we read in Ezra chapter 4, had been convinced by the surrounding governors, guys like Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem that we read about in our passage, to, to halt any re future rebuilding efforts in the city. And, and so it was stopped. And so for the past 10 years or so, the city has basically just continued to sit empty and in ruins just as it had been for the past 140 plus years. And so you, you can imagine, you can imagine how disheartened, maybe even jaded, right, the people who were living there must have been by now, right? The city of Jerusalem has been empty, sitting in ruins for 140 years. The, all of the hope and the excitement and the expectation that those return exiles would have brought back with them for the rejuvenation and the reestablishment of the city has long since faded by now. What they're left with is a sullen, defeated attitude. With that Jerusalem, I guess, will just always be a pile of rubble. That it... There's no reason to believe that that would change. They had gotten their hopes up too many times only to have them dashed over and over again. And Nehemiah, understand, he gets that reality. He, he understands that, right? He gets that a glorified sommelier showing up, right, to a city he's never been to with a vision to do something that has proved impossible to do for 140 plus years is going to be a bit of a hard sell right? Like it's, it's not going to be something that everyone's just stoked about, right? Which is why, you see, he doesn't come prancing into Jerusalem with some grand vision of restoration. He's not waving the flag of victory before he starts laying a single brick. In fact, what you see is that he doesn't actually even tell anybody why he's there, right? 
the dude's got an entourage, right? Like he's got letters from the king. He's got a posse with him, right? He's got piles of timber that the king sent with him on the journey, right? Like he is, like, you got to imagine the people in Jerusalem are like, what is going on, right? Like, what is this guy here for? And Nehemiah, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't give away, he doesn't give away what's going on to. Instead, what we see that, what we see him doing is continuing to thoughtfully plan and prepare and and that begins, the first thing he sees is that he doesn't jump right into rebuilding. He takes a few days to rest. I mean, he's got to be honest, right? After months of traveling on an animal across, you know, a bajillion of miles throughout the ancient Persian empire, the dude's got to be tired. I mean, it's a good thing he did not have kids with him. The dude is single, right? Because could you imagine how many are we there yet? Like that would have been 900 miles on a donkey? Like that was, that would just be insane, right? But... In all seriousness, right, you, you can imagine how hard that would have been for him to choose to wait and rest. He has been praying and planning and traveling and everything that he's been doing for the past probably eight months at this point has been leading up to him getting to Jerusalem and starting this project that he is very confident that God's behind. And I'm sure that he was tired, but, but if that was me, right, if I was Nehemiah, I'd be like, Let's do this thing. Like, rally the troops. We, we are here. Let's start the project. Let's get it going, right? But instead, what you see is that Nehemiah rests for three days. Some of you guys are like, you are go-getters, right? And you haven't had a day off in a long time. And you're like, a three-day weekend before you even started the project? Dude, like, get your crap together, right? Like, we got, we got stuff to do, right? But the reality is that Nehemiah shows us the, that his, his physical rest I think is the reality of a sign of his spiritual rest. You see, what Nehemiah realizes is that for the past 140 years, uh, God's plans and purposes have not rested on him. And for the next three days, they still aren't resting on him. That God's the one who's in control. That the thing that the project hinges on is not Nehemiah and his plans, but it's God's power and his authority. And so Nehemiah chooses to rest. You see, I think oftentimes our inability to rest, our inability to choose to stop and to pray rather than diving right into the things we feel like God's asking us to do is a sign that we functionally believe that it depends on us. We're under the delusion that it actually hinges on us. And it doesn't. See, the project of rebuilding the wall and the project of God's people today and building the church for his kingdom, it does not hinge on us. It hinges on God. And so that frees us to rest. It enables us to rest because our confidence isn't in ourselves, it's in him. And so once he's rested, what we see is that he goes out under the secretive cover of night with just a few people, and he thoroughly surveys the, the walls of the city and the state of the project, right? As just, uh, and he finds out that just like his brother Han and I reported in chapter one, that the walls of Jerusalem are indeed broken down and that the gates are indeed burned by fire, right? It gets so bad at one time that he has to get off his horse and go on foot because the piles of rubble are too, they're too big to actually even ride a horse around. You see a wall that once stood 15 to 20 feet high, three to four feet wide, a mile and a half to two miles long, was strewn about the countryside in burnt piles of rubble and stone. And that's what Nehemiah sees when he returns. This was not a simple task. It wasn't something you just needed a go-getter 
to just get the job done. It was a monumental kind of task. It was one that could only be done with the help of God. And Nehemiah knew that he would need to count the cost before he wants to start building. But now that he's seen it for himself, for what it really is, now that he has an actual assessment of what's really going on, what he sees that he, he goes to his fellow Israelites, right? And he, that he had returned from exile over the past 70 years and were living throughout the countryside surrounding the city. And he, he goes to them and he pitches them this vision that God's given him about rebuilding the city. And there's a few really important things that I want to point out to you about the way that Nehemiah communicates what, what God is calling his people to. And it's really important stuff for us to see. And the first is that what you see is, well, the first thing I want to point out is that ne- is the, are the motivations that Nehemiah gives for inviting the people into this project. The motivations, the reasons he gives for it. In verse 17, he, he says to them, he says, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Guys, you see the situation, right? I see it too. I see, I know what's going on. He says, come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Now, that reason that Nehemiah gives, right, so that they would no longer be in disgrace, that would have come as, that, that's, not the re, that's not the reason most people would have given for rebuilding a wall in the ancient world. You see, the, the reason why pretty much everyone in the ancient world would have cared about building or rebuilding the walls of a city was about safety and about security, right? You see, in the, in the ancient world, cities were built inside of walls because that was a defensible position. And if you had no walls, then you had no way to defend your city. And so no walls means no city. And no city, no people, it doesn't work without a wall in the ancient world, right? And so you would think that the reason why Nehemiah would give that is the reason why the people should rebuild the wall is so that they can be safe and secure again. But he says, no, Nehemiah's primary concern is not about safety and security. It's about the removal of the disgrace that these broken walls bring with them. One commentator sums it up this way, he says, Nehemiah's priority was not to alleviate his sense of insecurity or danger, but rather his sense of shame that Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the God of heaven, lay in ruins. You see, Jerusalem was God's city. It was the place that God had said that he would cause his name to dwell. It was the place where God was supposed to be worshipped and God's people were supposed to live for the praise of his glory, declaring to the world what it's like when, when people live under the good, kingly authority of God. And, and what you see happening is that, is that the state of the walls and of this city are always inextricably linked with the very name and the reputation of God. And so for those like Nehemiah who love God's name and who want to see God honored and worshipped and and praise. This is intolerable, right? He, he hates the fact that the city is laying in ruins and that its status is shaming the name of God. And so he calls his spiritual brothers and sisters to see the state of the city and the people of God like God does. To see its dilapidated walls broken down, its gates burned with fire, not as a merely an insecure place to be, but as a disgrace to the very name and the reputation of God. A disgrace that must not be allowed to remain any longer. 
And so for Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem isn't about being seen as some impressive leader or some heroic figure, a savior come to rescue God's people, nor is it merely about God's people having a safe place to live again. The motivations Nehemiah gives for why God's people should give themselves to the rebuilding of the walls of a city are rooted in a concern for the very name and glory of God. You see, what Nehemiah understands is the reality that only a God-sized and God-centered vision for rebuilding, for building the kingdom of God is ever going to inspire a downtrodden and defeated people to again pick up their hammers and trowels again and to begin the monumental task of rebuilding the walls. Any other motivations would have been insufficient. And the reality is that for us as well, the same is true. We can be motivated to be a part of building God's kingdom for all kinds of reasons, but the only reason that lasts is when the thing that captivates our attentions, the thing that drives our motivations, is a desire for God's name to be glorified, for him to be worshipped and praised as the great king and creator he really is. That's the one thing that brings lasting transformational motivations to our pursuit of God's kingdom. And, and so Nehemiah gets that. And so he starts with the right motivations. But, but Nehemiah also realizes that the right motivations are not going to be enough. Zerubbabel and Ezra, they both had good motivations. They had the right motivations. But the city's walls still laid in ruins. See, and that leads us to the second thing I want to show you about Nehemiah's vision here that he, that he presents to the people. So important. You see that he tells them about the source of his confidence. He tells them about the reason why he's so confident that this is going to work and, and why they can be confident in what's going on here, right? He tells them, he says, Nehemiah knows that the people are going to need to have a confidence that is not rooted in him or in his plans or his strategies, no matter how good they are. Remember, he is a glorified sommelier trying to head up the construction project of the century. They're going to need a little bit more than a good idea. They're going to need to see the, the kind of confidence that can only come from seeing that the great sovereign king and the creator of the universe is the one who has been orchestrating this from the beginning. And so he sees, he tells them, he tells them about what God's already done. Verse 18, he says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God who was on me and about what the king had said to me, right? He tells them about how God changed the heart of the great king Artaxerxes, right? How he miraculously caused him to reverse his own previous decision about Jerusalem and to now personally endorse and fund the, the rebuilding of a city that he once was vehemently opposed to. And the reason why Nehemiah is so confident in what God's put in his heart to do and the reason why he gives as to why the people can be confident about what he's asking them to do is because of what God's already shown he's done. See, Nehemiah's confidence is, is not in his plan. He doesn't, it's not that his plan is great and don't miss this. His confidence is not rooted in the king's support of his work. His confidence is rooted in God because he knows that the king's miraculous support of this project can only be explained by the fact that God's the one who is behind it all. It's proof that this is not Nehemiah's vision, that it's God's. He's the one who's behind it all. Church, here, here's the reality. Our willingness to step out in faith 
And to be a part of building the kingdom of God will always be directly connected with the confidence we have in God himself. It's always going to be directly connected with that. And if we forget what God has done and what he can do, then our confidence is going to wane. Our courage will always wane. But if we choose to remember what God has already done and therefore what he can do again in the future, what will happen is that our confidence will grow. You see, reminding ourselves and one another about how God's proven himself to be sovereign and faithful and good and trustworthy, that's how you grow your confidence in him. And that's how you grow a confidence that allows you to follow him into the hard and risky world of being a part of building his kingdom. There have often been times uh, throughout the planning of River City Church that Aaron and I have, have needed to remind each other about God's sovereignty, his faithfulness, his goodness to get us this far. When money has been tight and we felt like we might never get to a place of self-sufficiency, we reminded each other about how when we were doing fundraising and, and beginning to build funds to, to raise, to start this church, how we felt like we'd never really get over this last hump and finally get rolling. And, and uh, we met this random lady I had never met before and have not since talked to after this. And she came up to me after a sermon that I had preached at the church that we were a part of before we started River City. And, and she just asked me, how much do you need to get going? What do you need to finish? What do you need to get, to get things started? And I told her, and later that week, a check for $12,000 showed up in the mail. I have never since talked to this person. Never, I've never even been able to get a hold of her ever since. I could tell you lots of stories like that. Or just this week, Aaron and I were talking about how one day we're going to outgrow this building and the space that we're in here. By God's grace, we went from one services to this fall, and that's been going well. And one day we're going to outgrow this space. And the reality is, is we were just talking about, the reality is, is that the, the next size space that we're going to need as a church is not just like going to be like a little bit more expensive or a little bit more complicated. It's going to be like multiple orders of magnitude, like more expensive and more complicated and more, it's going to need a lot more. And it can be easy to feel like, I have no idea how this is ever going to work out. And then we choose to remember how when we were in the Best Western Hotel, desperately looking for a place that we could actually meet as a church for long term, how, how we were feeling hopeless about how we'd never find a place that we could afford or, or, that, or that would work for our church, how God opened the doors for this place. And how he gave us favor with the landlords who chose to rent to us instead of the three or four other people who applied to rent this place and how they rented it to us for a price that's about a third of what it should actually get rented for, which turns out to be about the same amount as we were paying for the hotel. And the reality is, is that that's crazy, right? When a realtor friend of yours comes to the church and finds out how much you're paying and tells you never, ever to leave, right? That's how you know that that's a God thing, right? That it could only have been him. But when we're trying to plant more small groups in healthy and sustainable ways and it just feels like our plans and ideas keep falling through and what we were hoping would happen just doesn't work out, we remind each other about how the church started with one small group and we're at five now and zero of those multiplications happened the way we thought they would. It always tends to be plan G, you know, like all of the multiple plans that we thought would work out, none of them work, right? And then God brings up plan G, which was his plan all along. And God works it in a way that brings about healthy growth and multiplication. You see, reminding ourselves about those stories is not just like, hey, let's be sentimental on our fifth anniversary as a church, right? 
Reminding ourselves about those stories is important because they're reminders about what God has done and therefore what he is very clearly capable of doing again. And they remind us that our hope is not in us and what we can bring about, but our hope is in God and his purposes and his ability to bring about his plans, often in spite of us. You see, choosing to remember who God has proven he is and what he can do in the past is so important because what it enables you to do is in the midst of uncertainty and in the midst of opposition, instead of pulling back, it allows you to press in to what God calls you to and what you know that he's inviting you into, into being a part of building his kingdom. And that leads us to the third thing we see. You see, opposition is something that will always face God's people as they seek to build his kingdom. And we see that happens in, for Nehemiah, right? And what his response shows us his resolve in the face of opposition. You see, there's one thing that we learn throughout the Bible of what happens when God's people seek to live for his glory is that there will always be opposition to it. Every time, no matter what, there's always opposition to people seeking to live for the glory of God and obey him. And Jesus himself, who is actually God himself, faced opposition. So it will always be around. And we see is that, is that uh, the same is true here. The dude barely gets done pitching his vision uh, to, the, to God's people in Israel about his heart to rebuild the city and rebuild the people who will live for the glory of God and, and who will show his glory instead of his disgrace. And, and, and you see what happens is, is, is that the opposition has already started before you can barely even get the last part of the vision out. In this case, it comes in the form of three leaders from the land surrounding the city of Jerusalem, Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem. They would have controlled the, the land literally surrounding on all sides of Jerusalem. And they were not stoked about God's people and about God's purposes being rebuilt because it, was, it, was, it meant that it was going to be a problem for them. Verse 19 says this way, but when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they ask? Are you rebelling against the king? And we're going to see these guys come up uh, a number of times throughout the letter. They are like the thorn in Nehemiah's side that just will not go away, right? Um, and they're opposed to the rebuilding of the wall and the rebuilding of God's people in the city. And we see here that their opposition starts with mockery and ridicule. And in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's just annoying at this point. But you see happening is that it, it pretty quickly escalates to death threats. Pretty quickly, right? It goes from an annoying mockery to some real actual threats. Because what they quickly find is that Nehemiah's boldness and his confidence in, in what he feels like God has called and empowered him to do is not going to be swayed by some regional officials trying to get him to doubt himself. You see, he's not relying on his own power. He's not trusting in himself. Nor is he relying on the king's support primarily. You see, Nehemiah's confidence is not in any of those things. We saw his confidence is in the great God of heaven. You see, he's relying on God's power and his proven support of the work he's calling them to and the rest of these exiles to Nehemiah responds in verse 20. He says, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success and we, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Nehemiah 
basically responds to their empty threats, right? He says, uh, dudes, you already know what the king said, right? I gave you the letters of safe passage as I came through the city, right? You know that the king's already on board with the mission, right? So you and I, we already know that. You're just being ridiculous at this point. But, but the way he responds is, is, is basically what he's saying is that the truth is, is that even if the king wasn't behind this, it doesn't matter. You see, it's not King Artaxerxes who's going to give them success, It's the God of heaven who is behind it. And so Nehemiah says, because we trust in him, we're going to start rebuilding the wall. And you're not going to have a part in stopping it, and you won't have a part in rejoicing when it's done. How encouraging do you think that must have been for the Israelites who are living in the broken down walls of Jerusalem? Nehemiah has just asked them to give themselves to the mission of rebuilding this impossibly big wall. And the reason why they can be confident that God is doing it is because God's the one who's behind it. And Nehemiah then proceeds to put his money where his mouth is. As soon as opposition starts, the ground that Nehemiah stands on is not, oh yeah, we have the support of the king, don't worry about it. No, the ground that he stands on, he says, the great God of heaven will give us success. You ain't got nothing on him, right? It's no influence you have with him. He's the one who's going to cause things to succeed. See, Nehemiah's motivations that he gives, the the confidence that he gives, it wasn't some empty rah-rah speech, right? It's true. So really at the heart of what was motivating and driving him, where his confidence really lay. In response to all this, we see how the people in verse 7, how they're, they're all in. And they begin the good work, not just of rebuilding a wall, but as we'll see throughout the story about rebuilding a people whose lives and whose city proclaim the glory and the power and the majesty of God. You see, here's, here's the deal, church. The point of this sermon is not, hey, let's look at Nehemiah's great vision casting strategy, and then we'll try to imitate that when we cast our own vision, right? And Nehemiah is a great leader, and we're just going to try, it's like leadership tips and tricks, right? That's not what's going on here. You see, the reality, the, the point of the story is that if like the people of God in Nehemiah's day, who, who God was asking to be a part of the rebuilding of his physical kingdom, we too as the church... We're God's people today, and, and we are well, not called to build a wall, but we are called to be a part of building the spiritual kingdom of God. And if we're going to have any hope of boldly saying yes to what God is calling us into and to being a people, as First Peter says, who are set apart by God, called to be and to live for the praise of his glory, to proclaim the one who has called us out of darkness into light, then we are going to need to be motivated by a desire for his glory, not something else. And we're going to need to have a confidence that is rooted not in a great leader or a great plan or a great strategy, but it was rooted in the great God of heaven. You see, the work God's called us to as a church to be a part of growing in the gospel and making disciples and planting churches, that is a work that we are wildly incapable of doing by ourselves. And, spoiler alert, it's also one we're incapable of doing together. It only happens, it only happens if God's gracious hand is on us. That's the only way any of that happens. There is no amount of effort, 
and work. There's no amount of just wanting it enough and trying hard enough that brings that stuff about. God's the one who brings all of that about. And the reality is, is, that, is that he's the one who does. And the reason why we can be confident in, in his gracious hand being on us and his plan succeeding is not because we have a great plan or strategy, but because we have the promise that Jesus is the one who himself is building his church. We have a promise and our, our hope is in him that he's a greater leader than Nehemiah ever could be and he has a greater zeal for the glory of God's name than Nehemiah could ever have had and his zeal and passion for his glory and his name led him to give his very life on our behalf so that he might use us as broken, burnt stones to be built up into a living temple unto him. First Peter 2 chapter says it. First Peter chapter 2 verse 4 says it this way. So as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, in, in Jerusalem, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You see, if God's people in Nehemiah's day could have confidence that God was in the work he'd called them to, how much more confident can we be? How much more confident can we be? Jesus, the true and better Nehemiah, has already come and he already conquered Satan and sin and death for greater enemies than Sanballat and, and Geshem and, and the rest of Tobiah. That, that he promises in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell themselves will not overcome the work he's doing in building his church. And so we can know for certain that his purposes don't fail. And that his plans cannot be thwarted. And that what he's called us to is to be a people who live for the praise of his glory and to build a church that exists for that praise. We can count that, that, that the confidence we have to be a part of that is not a shakable one. Because he's the one who's at work doing it. He's the one who's at work building his church and promises to bring it to completion. You see, remembering and celebrating those realities. It's a big part of what we're doing every week when we take communion. Reminding ourselves about who God is and all he's done. Reminding ourselves that the confidence that we have before him isn't dependent on us, but it's dependent on a hope and a faith in him. And he's unshakable. He is immovable. The work that Jesus began, he finished. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father. All of it's done. All of eternity is already written, and he wins. And he's faithful to build his church and to create a people who will live for the praise of his glory. And so we can give our lives confidently to his purposes and his plans. And we can hope and trust that he's the one who will always bring them about. And so as we take communion this morning, I want to encourage you. See, here's a chance to remember to remember all that God has done, where your confidence lies. Communion doesn't change your standing or your status with him. It's a chance to remember Jesus 
and all that he's done so that we might be filled with the confidence in him that overflows into a life of bold dependence on him. And so as we sing and as we worship this morning, I want to encourage you, go back and take communion if you put your faith in him. If he's the, conf- the source of your confidence and right standing with God is faith in Jesus' blood shed on your behalf, then go back, take communion. Do it as a celebration. If you're here this morning and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out who he is and if he's one you really can trust to surrender your life to, I want to encourage you this morning. He is. And you can't trust him. And you can't be confident that he is who he says he is and that he will do all that he has promised to do. So I want to encourage you, put your faith in him. And if you do, then go back and take communion. God's not after rituals. He's not after going through the motions. He's after our hearts surrendered trusting in him. So as we close this morning, I know I've gone long, but I just want to close with this. As we sing and remember the gospel together in song, I just want to encourage you, talk with God. Ask him to remind you about all that he's done, how faithful and good and sovereign he is so that your confidence in him might grow. I just want to encourage you this. One of the best ways to grow your confidence in God is not just to remember those stories, but to tell them to one another. And tell them to your kids and tell them to your spouse and tell them to your small group. Remember together how great and good and sovereign and faithful God is. But also ask him to empower you with a motivation to build his kingdom that's rooted in the desire for the praise of his glory to be known. Any other motivation is going to be insufficient and lackluster and it will fail. But a pursuit of God's glory, that's worthwhile and that stands. See, the reality, church, is that the work God's called us to as his people is even better than the work that God called Nehemiah and his people to in their day. And we can be confident because of Jesus that the first five years of this church are just the beginning of what he's doing. And so might we be a people who say yes to giving our lives to building a community that lives for the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful for you and we're thankful for our time together we just ask humbly, God, that you might be glorified and worshiped in and through our church. God, we want to put our hope and our trust in you, that you indeed are the one who rules and reigns, and that your promises always hold true. And so empower us, Jesus, in a conf- out of a confidence in you to give ourselves to being and to building a community that will live for the praise of your glory. We pray this all in your name. Amen.